Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And yet again, this topic of women's colleges is coming from a listener suggestion. So listeners... Proof positive that we do take your suggestions seriously. And we steal them and we use them for, well, for good. Yes. Yeah. For podcasting. But women's colleges was such a great topic because it's sort of, kind of, college-ish season. Yeah. The kids are getting ready to move out of their parentals' homes. Yeah. School's out. For For summer. summer. And thus, so let's stop this podcast. Uh, It can't get any better. It cannot. But what can get better is the information that we're going to give you about the history of women's colleges (laughs) and the kind of precarious position that they're in these days. Uh, But first, let's offer a little overview of what exactly is a woman's college. And the snarky answer to that is it's a college where women go to learn well that and according to the Department of Education to get specific about things it is an institution where there is an institutional mission to serve the needs of women in higher education as well as a predominantly female student body so you know in case you wanted to get real granular there it is and it seems like uh if if you think that a minority of women attend women's colleges you would be so right however the proportion was a lot higher about a century ago because i mean we don't need to point this out to you intelligent listeners women weren't so much welcome at men's colleges because they were just for men just for men like the hair dye exactly Everybody went around dyeing their hair and their beards. Um, so the fact that women did not have anywhere to pursue any sort of quality education outside of the home was a major problem, as you can imagine. And so institutions did start springing up uh, prior to the Civil War. And these were seminaries. These weren't colleges, as we think of them today, but they were private secondary schools for young women during the early 19th century, and they really were the beginning of an interest in furthering educational opportunities for women. And these seminaries that we're talking about did not serve the traditional purpose we might think of as training someone for religious work, but rather these women's seminaries often trained women to be teachers. And then as full-fledged women's colleges, discreet from seminaries, uh, began training women in traditionally male disciplines. And they were the only institutions where women could study things like science, math, law, and philosophy. And that history is carried forward to today where you see that a lot of students at women's colleges are more likely to study STEM courses, the science, tech, engineering, and math, than they are at larger or co-ed institutions. Right. And during this time, before the Civil War, there were only three private colleges that admitted women, and they were all in Ohio, Antioch, Oberlin, and Hillsdale. Actually, my father went to Hillsdale But at that point, it was in Michigan. Um, Only two public universities at this time admitted women. Those were the University of Iowa and the University of Deseret, which is now the University of Utah. But among all of these goings on, criticism of seminaries was growing because basically a lot of critics out there were saying it's just not 
sufficient. These institutions are not sufficient to teach our women because all it's teaching them is how to be proper and, uh, you know, have great posture and learn to be teachers. They need to be able to learn more things better. Yeah, and during this time, famed educator Catherine E. Beecher was arguing against seminaries in a way because she was basically saying that women's colleges and women's higher education needed more resources because at the time the, the seminaries weren't offering sufficient or permanent endowments for buildings and libraries and that once you got things like boards of trustees established you could secure better teachers and therefore offer a higher level of instruction. Right. And this was also this was part of the women's rights movement where women viewed quality education as a way to gain equality. You know, we don't want something that's lesser than we want something that's equal to what men have to get the same kind of quality education. And then maybe we can have a step up in society. Now, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, what was leading to an increased demand for higher education for women? Because even just the fact that women might be thinking about getting additional school learning was a bit of a revelation. Um, and it had to do a lot with things like increases in labor-saving devices at the home, so it frees up more time. Uh, there was a shortage of teachers, in addition, due to the growth of common schools, um, and that growth also instilled in girls a desire to learn. And on top of that, you have a proliferation of books for women, periodicals for women. Uh, there's more philanthropy directed towards women's education and some limited employment opportunities for women thanks to the, and that's thanks in quotes, to things like the Civil War man drain and a desire to educate future mothers who would in turn raise educated children. This was around the time of the Republican framework of motherhood where good mothers raised their children to be good citizens and there was an educational component to that. Right, so it's okay and it's safe for women to be educated as long as it's being applied to raising good future citizens. Exactly. Well, in the Northeast, uh, as far as women's colleges go, that's the home to a lot of independent nonprofit schools geared toward women who wanted to study the liberal arts. In the South, the small women's schools were mostly affiliated with various Protestant churches, such as... Um, Agnes Scott College here in Decatur, Georgia, um, right next door to us in Atlanta, which was started by the Presbyterians, which I just learned. Um, and these educational opportunities, however, were limited to white students. So institutions for blacks were started after the Civil War, such as Bennett, which actually didn't become a women's college until 1926, and Spelman, which are the only black women's colleges today. And speaking of the fact that Agnes Scott, for instance, was started by the Presbyterian Church, uh, Catholic institutions were also growing along with the Catholic population in the U.S., and there were movements there to establish public women's colleges. Uh, so let's get into some firsts. Now, since we are in Atlanta, Caroline, I am proud to report that the very first school in the United States chartered in 1836 to grant women, quote, all such honors, degrees, and licenses that are usually conferred in colleges and universities to men was the Georgia Female College, which is now known as Wesleyan, which is in Macon, Georgia. 
Mm-hmm. And that is associated, obviously, with the Methodist Church. And it turns out that Wesleyan is the oldest women's college that has neither closed nor become co-ed. And we'll get into that a little bit later when we're talking about the modern problems that a lot of women's colleges face and how they cope with it. So that's pretty impressive that Wesleyan has stayed open this entire time and just educated women. But we also have Mary Sharp College in Tennessee, which in 1851 was the first U.S. women's college to require both Latin and Greek in a four-year course and give an associate baccalaureate degree comparable to those awarded by men's colleges. Unfortunately, Mary Sharp closed in 1896. Now, one of the challenges with establishing these early women's colleges was what the educator Catherine E. Beecher was talking about in terms of wanting to make sure that the education that women were getting at women's colleges or seminaries were equivalent to what men were leaving college with. And Elmira College in New York, which was founded in 1855, is cited as the first women's college in the United States that succeeded in doing just that, of offering a degree comparable with men's colleges. Yeah, and that school actually went co-ed in 1969. Also in New York, we have Vassar College, which I'm sure you've heard of, Kristen. Uh, in 1865, it was the first to have an adequate endowment and attain comparable standards to those of men's colleges, which, again, is what Beecher was talking about. You know, we have to give these schools the same support that men's colleges do. And, and that adequate endowment is a large part of why Vassar has been so successful. But, of course, while these women's colleges' educational offerings are becoming more robust and more women were interested in higher education and pursuing college degrees. Not everybody was happy about that in the late 1800s. For instance, may I quote Harvard President Charles W. Eliot, who in an 1899 speech really summed up uh, people's feelings about uh, women and their potential for learning at the time. Quote, women's colleges should concentrate on an education that will not injure women's bodily powers and functions. Because, Caroline, when we think, it heats up our brain and that heat could travel down to our reproductive organs and spoil all of the ovaries. Yeah, we could get a brain fever. In our eggs. Yeah. yeah. And then we might not be able to become mothers and raise the kids. And heavens to Betsy, if in 1899 you were not not only one of those women who was getting one of those brain fever degrees, but you were also <laughs> riding a bicycle oh, to Lord. and from class with all that friction. Lots of dangers for women. So many. I mean, we are so fragile. But M. Carrie Thomas, who was the highly educated president of Bryn Mawr, and I know that could sound patronizing out of context, but I mean, this woman traveled to Europe to be able to get her advanced degrees. Like, she was that committed to education. Uh, so M. Carrie Thomas, the president of Bryn Mawr, said, You may say you do not think God intended a woman to be a bridge builder. You have, of course, a right to this prejudice, but you you will probably not be able to impose it on women who wish to build bridges. I love it. I love it. Put the whole thing on a T-shirt. I'll wear it. 
And part of this fear, this culture that Charles W. Eliot, the Harvard president, existed in was not just that, you know, we would run off to college and get brain fevers by learning too much, but that we would just decide that we didn't want to get married. Oh, my God, what would happen then? You know, it could affect the size of families. It could affect marriages. And a big fear was that a decline in marriage would then lead to Race suicide, a, co- a term coined by uh, Teddy Roosevelt. But miraculously, as we well know now, women going to college has actually, you know, coincided with <laughs> massive population expansion. Good for us women, indeed. So we're doing just fine. Um, but now that we have the, the the history, the early history of women's colleges established, let's zero in on perhaps the best known. Cluster of women's colleges known as the Seven Sisters. And this is essentially the women's college answer to men's Ivy League schools. And the Seven Sisters consist of Barnard, Smith, Mount Holyoke, Vassar, Bryn Mawr, Wellesley, and Radcliffe. And whoop whoop to all of our alumni listeners out there. Well done. Yeah, these are incredible schools. Several of them were, um, as was common at the time, were grown out of men's colleges. Like Radcliffe was basically Harvard's answer to a women's school. Um, these schools had very high admission standards and were able to recruit and retain a high percentage of women faculty. But there was quite a significant downside in that these schools did not take well to racial integration. Yeah, uh, Linda Perkins, who is a researcher at Hunter College, looked into racial integration in the Seven Sisters Women's Colleges, and she found that there were a lot of barriers for entry, and it wasn't just a thing of the very early history. Some colleges, some of the Seven Sisters Colleges, didn't actively recruit black black women until the 1960s when the civil rights movement was in full swing. And she cites a W.E.B. Dubois study from 1900 in which he found that it was easier for a black man to gain entrance into a white men's college than for a black woman to enter a white women's college. Right. And to give you some perspective, in 1833, Oberlin began admitting women and black students. From 1833 to 1910, about 400 black women graduated from Oberlin. In contrast, for the 100-year period between 1860 and the early 1960s, only about 500 black women graduated from all Seven Sisters Colleges. And Perkins points out that some were better than others in terms of being more accepting of black students, but Vassar, Barnard, and Bryn Mawr, y'all, you were the worst. Those were the most resistant, she found, to admitting black women. And even when black students were admitted to these women's colleges, things like separate housing was always an issue. They were always segregated. And in 1914, for instance, uh, Radcliffe president, LeBaron Russell Briggs, tried to help uh, black student Mary Gibson with financial aid. But in his donor outreach, he repeatedly stressed that Mary Gibson didn't look black. In fact, her skin tone was almost white, and she could even be taken for Spanish. So, hello, 
racism still existing, even at these upper echelons of higher education for women. Right. But despite all of this, despite all of the junk that they had to face when they got to these schools, the Seven Sisters grads were among the earliest black women scientists, lawyers and doctors. So they still went after that education and they still went out into the world and made a difference despite the resistance they faced, like you said, even at these schools. And Caroline, speaking of black women, women's colleges and the fact that we are in Atlanta, I would like to point out that Atlanta is also home to Spelman College, an historically black college and university, which is women only and one of the only institutions like that in the U.S. Indeed. Indeed, they do. So as we progress through time, social changes start to occur, and the women's colleges try to roll with the punches. So between 1920 and 1950, they really start to diversify and expand. Several four-year colleges were founded, as were two-year women's junior colleges with vocational missions. So more women were starting to enter the college universe, but... As time went on and more colleges opened their doors to women or more more co-ed schools were founded, yes, more women might have been choosing to go to college, but more were also choosing to go co-ed in general. So the good news is that from 1909 to the mid-1950s, women's enrollment in higher education jumps from 141,000 to more than a million. Hooray! Women going off to pursue college and universities. Uh, but it's not so great news for women's colleges because as early as 1920, more than four-fifths of college women were attending co-ed schools. And then by the mid-1950s, nine-tenths of college women were in co-ed schools. Yeah, so those numbers are dropping for women's colleges. And so a lot of them are forced to scramble and things only get worse for women's colleges. Well, except for, though, in the 1960s and 70s, when women's colleges do kind of have a moment. They do. And there were a lot of things that contributed to that. It wasn't just uh, second wave feminism, although that was a part of it. Because of second wave feminism, there was a rebound in student support for uh, women's only colleges. The support for mergers and co-education seemed to wane amid this time. And this was also helped along by the buoyant economy of the 60s. For instance, Wells College had its highest ever enrollment from 1966 to 1972. And that school only recently became co-ed, actually. And similar things, though, are going on at all-male institutions that in the 1960s and 70s are starting to open their doors to women. Today, I believe there are only two all-men's colleges left in the United States, Hampton, Sydney, and one out west, which whose name I do not remember at the moment. Uh, but there are far fewer all-male colleges compared to women's colleges. Oh, Morehouse. What am I talking about? Morehouse is all men. Out west. In Atlanta. Atlanta. (laughs) In West Atlanta, there is Morehouse, where President Barack Obama visited last Sunday and shut down traffic. Barry, I'd like a heads up next time. I'm just saying. (laughs) 
Okay, so during this time, a lot of women's colleges, like I said, are, are trying to roll with the punches here as as demographics shift, as numbers increase and decrease and fluctuate. So a lot of them end up becoming co-ed, merging with all male or co-ed schools, or closing due to that declining enrollment and financial problems related to competition. The things that helped a lot of the women's colleges survive that did survive this period was reaffirming their mission. So their mission where they are dedicated to providing a quality education for women, um, enhancing their connections with other institutions, adding new programs to appeal to non-traditional students, such as night and weekend programs, but also that thing we mentioned earlier of having generous endowments and loyal alumni who will support the mission. And it's helpful, too, that a lot of times women's colleges leave a legacy of really successful alumni who are very loyal to their alma maters and will support that. But nevertheless, the number of women's colleges has dropped drastically. There were around 300 of them in the United States in 1960. In 1998, it had dropped to around 80. And now in 2013, there are fewer than 50 women's colleges left. And as of 2010, the total enrollment across all of those institutions was only 86,000. Yeah, small numbers, but those schools are still serving an incredibly important mission, according to a lot of people on the Internet, <laughs> where I get all of my information. It's all Wikipedia. You, you can just you can check. It's not actually Wikipedia. No, don't worry. <laughs> um, so one of those people who uh, stresses the importance of women's colleges is education consultant David Strauss, who talked to Boston's NPR station WBUR in April of this year. He pointed out that, you know, women's colleges that don't have those large endowments and don't draw students who can pay full tuition do have a more difficult time remaining competitive, but they maintain a critical function for a lot of women, which he says maybe they don't even realize when they're young. He says women tend to outperform men academically, but there are all kinds of societal pressures against it. These institutions represent a solution to that, but it's very difficult for an 18-year-old to see it. When young women matriculate at and go through an experience at a women's college, he says, most of them become converts. And there does seem to be an effect that women's colleges, that all-female environment has on the student body. Uh, There was a paper that I found in New Directions for Higher Education that came out in 2010 about, quote, tough questions facing women's colleges. And the author, Sarah Kratzok, points out that a lot of studies have highlighted really positive benefits of of women's colleges, such as the student body tends to have higher self-esteem. Women tend to say that they feel more supported on campus, that they made greater gains in college, and that, again, they might be more open to pursuing traditionally male-dominated courses or degrees such as those science and technology fields. Right, and that's something that Susan Lin- Susan Lennon, excuse me, of the Women's College Coalition pointed out in USA Today in August of 2012 that women are underrepresented in leadership programs and STEM fields. And so while women's colleges and going to a women's college is not necessarily the answer to fixing all of our gender gap problems, 
problems. It certainly plays a part. And Rachel Hennessy, who went to a women's college and wrote a column for Forbes in February of this year, said that choosing to attend such a college is the opposite of comfortable. That was her answer to people who were saying, oh, you're just trying to hide out from men and go wear your pajamas to class all day. She said because these women's college and the dynamics, the social dynamics at them, really challenge students to step outside of gender norms and engage in new leadership roles. The whole thing being, well, if you don't have people making you feel, and not that there aren't, you know, difficult social dynamics out of women's college, but if you don't have people making you feel like you just need to be the quiet, proper woman, then maybe you will feel more of a drive to step up and, and run for student government and start new clubs, you know, and on and on and on. And as someone who attended a co-educational university, I can personally attest to the fact that plenty of female students still wear pajamas to class. Oh, yeah. I I did. (laughs) Well, and also, I mean, the the whole preparation for leadership outside of college is something that is often touted as one of the major benefits to going to a women's college. Elizabeth Pfeiffer, who was a Scripps College student, wrote in the Huffington Post that this sense of leadership is very real at women's colleges. And she cited a statistic that graduates of women's colleges comprise more than 20% of women in Congress and represent 30% of the Business Week list of rising women in corporate America. Right. And given the fact that such a small percent of the female population in the U.S. goes to women's colleges, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So at the same time, these same columnists who went to women's colleges and definitely support women's colleges acknowledge that the women's college environment might not be right for everybody. There really does seem to be something to that. And there was a March 2008 survey of 1,000 women's college alumni and their female peers from liberal arts colleges or public flagship institutions. And in several key areas, the survey found that the alumni from women's colleges performed higher, including in the proportion of entrepreneurs produced and the leadership training perceived. Yeah, and they were also significantly more likely to have graduate degrees and a lot more women's college grads than co-ed college grads reported that they learned to solve problems, relate to people of different backgrounds, and think analytically. And so when you're talking about women entering leadership roles, I mean, how important is that? And the fact that these women feel way more prepared to take on those responsibilities is pretty significant. And all of this research is making me a tad bit regretful that I didn't go to Barnard because then I could have met Lena Dunham <laughs> and maybe I could be her. Maybe you could get naked on her show. Oh, never mind. <laughs> but for girls at high school, women's colleges are usually off the radar because I think that they do have some negative stereotypes associated with them that only weird girls want to go to women's colleges. And if you go to women's colleges, that means that you don't like men. And what's your problem if you don't want men around, which a lot of times with these, especially like seven sisters schools, you're in a consortium system where you you can go to class at other institutions if you want to. Um, but only 3% of high school girls these days would even consider a women's college due to fear of social judgment, which I think is too bad. Hmm. I mean, just because not saying that everyone should go to a women's college. You and I didn't go to women's colleges and we're totally fine for the most part. (laughs) 
but fear of social judgment is an awfully disappointing reason for a, a, a so, form- well, to make a major life decision. Exactly. I mean, you're letting. I, un- I understand being a teenager is so hard. I know. I know it is. But gosh, don't let your friends make you feel stupid for wanting to go to a, an all girls school. Right. A women's college. A women. Me. A women's college. Now, some people who are listening to us say, "Well, women's college isn't for everybody." Might be saying, "Well." No, duh. It's a women's college. Obviously, it's off limits to 50% of the population with XY chromosomes, right? But this issue of uh, gender is something that has come up more recently in women's colleges in terms of who they're going to admit, because women's colleges are obviously facing some pretty tough economic times, uh, dwindling numbers, and now an issue of... What about trans students? Because Smith College attracted some mighty negative attention when a trans applicant was automatically turned down because she was born biologically male. Yeah, she was forced to check the mailbox on her FAFSA form, essentially because her state does not recognize you being a different gender if you haven't had gender reassignment surgery. Right. And reading through this, the student is Calliope Wong and reading through all of the paperwork trail from the the FAFSA form that you have to fill out for. It's the financial student aid form. And then the and the, how they treat gender and then how Smith College treats gender. I mean, it, it was it kind of made me cross eyed. Going through it. But Calliope's kind of conclusion that she wrote about was like, okay, yes, I had to check mail on my FAFSA form. Like, yes, there are all these rules and regulations, but it boils down to the fact that Smith made a judgment call and decided not to admit me. And so after this whole hullabaloo um, in May of this year, Smith actually announced that it would form a committee to address issues pertaining to transgender students. And that committee is to meet in September. And on the heels of all of this, it was going on. A trans woman was accepted into the class of 2017 at the all women Simmons College. And there has been some academic research as well on this issue of trans students who might want to go to women's colleges that we found in the William and Mary Journal of Women and the Law from 2011. And the paper ultimately advocated for looser definitions of, quote, women and all women's college. Yeah, because they ask, can someone who's anatomically male yet identifies and presents as a woman be admitted to an all-women's college? It's this big question that I think more and more uh, universities are going to have to deal with. Not not just women's colleges, but I think trans issues and trans rights are going to be such a huge issue. Right, because one thing that was brought up, I, mean, I think it might have been in Calliope Wong's case, was just the example of bathrooms mm-hmm. at Smith College. They have the women's designated signs, and then they have something called flip signs, where if you have a male guest, he can flip the sign over to indicate that there's a bro in the shower or whatever. And um, and, and then it's like the question of like, well, if if you're trans, then and, and you haven't had gender reassignment surgery, then what do you do? And this ties into our episode that we did a while ago on restrooms and all the politics that you don't think about uh, when it comes to which bathroom you walk in. Um, so I have a feeling, though, that Smith will ultimately 
open its doors to trans students. As yeah. they should. Well, yeah. I mean, if if the way has been paved by schools like Simmons, mm-hmm. then I, I would think it's only a matter of time. Right. Because a, a lot of times, too, women's colleges have traditionally be, been seen as more liberal enclaves. You know, I mean, they were pioneers for gender equality in pre-Civil War era. So it would be sad to see, especially a college like Smith, that in the days of what could be the twilight of women's colleges, Mm -hmm. taking a negative stance towards something like admitting trans students, I think would be a grave misstep. Yeah. And perhaps I'm about to go into women's college consulting. I don't know. (laughs) There you go. For a fee. But reading about women's colleges did make me reflect on how my college experience might have been different if I had gone to one. I mean, obviously, the setting would have probably been much smaller. We went Mm -hmm. to a large public university. And so just by virtue of going to a smaller school, it would have been a different experience. And I didn't want to go to a tiny school because I went to a pretty small high school. Right. But especially hearing, like, thinking about, like, oh, well, maybe... You know, without other, without guys around, perhaps I, I would have gotten involved in student government or. I don't know. There was one, in one of these articles we read, there was a, an alumna of Spelman. And she said, you know, she transferred from a, a large co-ed university and she kind of expected to come to this utopia and like all of these women, you know, were braiding each other's hair and we're going to join every club and we're going to become the most highly educated women in the world. And she got there. She's like, oh. Well, women are people, and so there are some highly motivated women, there's some slackers, there's, you know, some, like, you know, leaders and followers, just like there are at any school. Women are people. I know, it is a radical, radical idea. But I do think that's how we get attached to these kinds of stereotypes about it, where it's like, oh, if you want to go to a women's college, it's because you are a socially awkward lesbian who only wants to be around a small group of women. Right. And that's it. You know, and if you are a socially awkward lesbian, that's completely fine. But I'm just saying that it's, you know, that can attract like these fears of social judgment for for making that choice. Yeah, I definitely I mean, I I wondered that, too, about my own college experience. I, you know, in transferring from uh, the University of South Carolina to the University of Georgia, I had to spend a semester at a really tiny, teeny, tiny religious school in in North Georgia on my way (laughs) On my way to Athens, and I was like, gosh, if this is what small school life is like. So I would definitely, I'm definitely the larger mm-hmm. university person. So, Well, you know what we need now? Hmm. We need listeners who went to women's colleges to let us know what it was like. That's right. I really, I'm, I'm sure that we have some WC alumni out there. So... We are soliciting your uh, your thoughts or uh, faculty at women's colleges, mm-hmm. male, female, whomever. We want to we, we want to hear what's going on. And especially if you are an administrator at a women's college, uh, let us know how things are going, because the whole shift from all women's colleges to co-ed has sparked a number of uh, protests on some women's college campuses so they'd rather be dead than co-ed and other fun slogans. So all of those things, let us know all of the things about women's colleges. Momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can send your letters or you can hit us up on Facebook or just tweet us. 
We're at Mom Stuff Podcast. And before we get to a couple of letters that you've written us, let's take a quick break and then we'll come right back. And now back to our letters. Well, we've got a couple of letters here in response to our episode on filial piety. The episode title was something along the lines of, Are Chinese Children More Loyal to Their Parents? And these letters were interesting because it offered a perspective on filial piety in a different culture. So, this is coming from a listener who would prefer to remain anonymous, who writes, I was listening to the Filial Piety podcast, and it brought up some powerful emotions. My parents are from Nigeria, and the whole filial piety seems like an Asia-specific thing to Americans. But I grew up in a household that had strong beliefs in honoring your parents and restricting your activities so you would do well in school. Thinking on my childhood leaves me conflicted. When I was a kid, I hated it, and it led me to have a negative relationship with my parents as an adult. But at the same time, I went to an Ivy League school because I worked really hard in high school. So at times, I resent the success because of what caused it. So I don't know if it's a good thing or not. I just know for me, it costs more than it was worth. So thanks for sharing, Anonymous. And I have one here from Henry. He says, I listened to your podcast on Chinese children being more loyal, and it actually helped me in my religious studies exam yesterday. You're welcome. He said, however, I do think that children showing gratitude isn't just due to Chinese culture. Other groups exhibit similar behavior. My dad is from Nigeria, and there was expectations on him to not only care for his parents, but perform other acts as well. In Igbo culture, one symbolic act is to give your parents your first salary payment, and they take a part of it and give the rest back. In Africa, if your child is rude, it brings a lot of shame on you. And in some nations, rude children have been accused of being witches and suffer in the name of their parents' reputation. I hope I've given you an insight into the issue from another perspective. And you certainly have, Henry, so thank you. I I can't count the number of times I would have been accused of being a witch as a child because of, like, temper tantrums and things. And now, if only we could do an outro with Witchy Woman. <laughs> I will spare you from my singing. So thanks to everybody who has written in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is our email address. You can also find us on Facebook. Drop us a line there and like us while you're at it. And follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And you can also follow us on Tumblr, where it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And don't forget to watch us. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on YouTube, we come out with a new video. So head over there. It's youtube.com slash stuff mom never told you and subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 